Welcome to Conversations on Wealth. This podcast is where the wealth industry experts discuss issues critical to family wealth planning. Join co-hosts Todd Angatavanich of Ernst & Young and Daniel Hoffey of Bloomberg Tax as they explore a range of topics from estate planning and taxes to governance and family dynamics to help wealth planning professionals guide their clients to the best solutions. Hello, everybody. Daniel and Todd here. I'm back for the second installment of Conversations on Wealth podcast in the Bloomberg Tax Jumpstart podcast collection. Well, thanks very much, Daniel. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in for our installment of our Conversations on Wealth podcast with Steve Akers. So, Steve, welcome. Todd and Daniel, thank you very much. Uh, Tax litigators caution that if your client knows that the company is contemplating putting being put up for sale within the next year or so, or for whatever reason, a, a sale is contemplated, tell the appraiser that. Very many situations, it'll make very little difference in what the, the number that the appraiser comes up with. But if you don't tell the appraiser, if the company, in fact, does sell, sells for significantly more than the appraised value, then that will be used against you and and will really take away a lot of the credibility of the appraisal. Uh, Another valuation uh, observation with respect to defined value clauses. It did not receive a lot of attention, but there was a case that was settled about a year ago. It was last August that the true T-R-U-E case was settled. Uh, That was a case in which there was a gift made to a daughter of closely held business interests that they thought was worth $34 million. In addition, there were some of these closely held interests, family interests, sold that they thought was worth $128 million. So $162 million of these hard-to-value interests were transferred. With respect to all of those, there was a kind of a wandry slash price adjustment provision. Uh, if it's ultimately determined that the value is wrong, then a note would be given from either the donee, the daughter, or from the grantor trust in the sale transaction, an additional note that beyond the sale price that was paid. The IRS alleged in that case, indeed, they were wrong on the values to the tune of $95 million that they were off, generating $33 million of gift tax. That's what the IRS alleged. Last August, that case settled with the taxpayers paying an additional $4 million of gift tax, not 33 but $4 million of gift tax. The purpose of a defined value clause is to minimize the gift tax risk. Uh, this is a case that came out last year suggesting that it worked in that case. Uh, last comment I'll make about valuation issues, and then Todd, look for your comment on these valuation comments. Tax sure. affecting for S corporations. The tax litigators tell us that indeed, when, when they see these, that they tax affecting is being applied. And the issue here is you have an S corporation, you determine the the income from the S corporation. We know the PE ratios of the big companies. So you try to find a big company that's traded on the public market uh, for which we can get the PE ratios and the value, apply the same PE ratio. Well, that really wouldn't make sense. The big C corporation company has already paid their income tax 
on that at the C corporation level. The S corporation has not yet paid its income tax. That's going to be a flow-through income tax liability each year out to the partners. doesn't make sense to apply the same P.E. ratio, hence tax affecting the earnings. Since the gross case, and this goes back, goodness, 20 years ago, tax court position is no tax affecting of S corporation earnings. The, the appraisers say that makes no sense. The appraisers are doing it. Buyers and sellers in real life are tax-affecting the earnings of S-corporations in determining an appropriate sales price when you compare it to C-corporations. Uh, tax litigators will say that this argument is being made. Go ahead and make the argument. Just realize that we know what the tax court says. Uh, tax litigators say that at some point they think the tax court will come around with the right result. In the meantime, appraisers should clearly lay out the reasons why they are, to quote, tax affecting the earnings if you're going to look to the P.E. ratios of C corporations in valuing the S corporation stock. A recent case is very interesting, raising valuation issues. This is the estate of Jones v. Commissioner, issued August the 19th, 2019. It is Tax Court Memo 2019-101. This is a gift tax valuation case. Even though it's a state of, that's merely because the donors both died before the gift tax audit got completed. It involves gifts of an interest in an S corporation that owned a sawmill that had been very successful, so successful it couldn't get enough timber to keep its machinery busy. So the family started buying timber in order to supply the sawmill. The timber was bought in a limited partnership. So gifts of interest in the S corporation and the limited partnership. The IRS on the I'm sorry, the taxpayer on the gift tax return said the value was about twenty one million. Uh, the IRS said it was worth hundred twenty million, so quite a difference. Two significant issues in the case among others. By far the biggest monetary issue was whether or not to use the income approach in valuing the entities or to use the net asset value approach. Clearly, the sawmill was an income approach. The limited partnership that owned the timberland, well, the timber was cut in accordance with standard forestry procedures, you know, a relatively small amount each year, uh, but harvested then to supply the sawmill. So producing income, but if you were to just cut all the timber all at once, and sell it all at once, value it on the net asset value approach, it would be worth more. And indeed, the both taxpayers' experts agreed that net, net asset value of the timber, if it's cut all at once, liquidated all at once, $400 million versus the taxpayers' appraisal of the income on an income approach of the limited partnership was $100 million, so a big difference. The court concluded that in this case where the timber was not going to be liquidated all at once, long history of harvesting slowly over time, uh, any person buying any of those interests that were transferred would not be able to force the liquidation of the timber. The court concluded that it was appropriate to value this on the income method rather than on the net asset value approach. Second issue in the case was tax affecting. About 20 years ago, in the gross case, the tax court said no tax affecting 
of S corporations. Uh, interestingly, before that time, the IRS manuals had said that in valuing an S corporation, if you're valuing it on the income approach, particularly when you're comparing to a comparable that is a another company for which you can get the data, well, that's usually a big public company. That's a C corporation. If you're comparing to a C corporation where the earnings are after the tax have been paid and you apply a P.E. ratio to that based on what you know that the Wall Street Journal value is, the, the IRS had said it's inappropriate to apply that same capitalization factor to an S corporation where the earnings have not yet been taxed. So you needed to apply some sort of adjustments to the earnings of the, ta- of the S corporation, hence tax affecting. Gross case said no. Uh, and so the IRS quickly changed all of its manuals and changed its approach. So that's the issue in this case. Do, do we tax effect or not? The, the taxpayer said yes. The taxpayer's appraisal uh, did that. The IRS said no. Gross case 20 years ago said no tax affecting. The court's reaction was that the IRS had misconstrued the gross case. It said that the gross case in, in, in that situation, the taxpayer had tax affected the earnings, uh, adjustment, make an adjustment to the earnings for the hypothetical taxes that would be paid out of it, but that the taxpayer didn't make any adjustment for the advantages of being an S corporation. And Judge Halpern in the gross case said, we know that the people, the way, the reason that people structure their businesses in S corporations is because there's an advantage of being an S corporation. And the taxpayer's appraiser didn't apply any advantage. And so, therefore, uh, it's appropriate just not to tax affect the earnings either. They kind of offset each other. Well, in this case, in the Jones case, the taxpayer's appraiser did tax affect the earnings, looked at, and interesting in this case, it was not the C corporation rate, but it said, what would the individual taxpayers pay at their individual rates on the S corporation flow-through earnings and on the partnership flow-through earnings to look at what the net after-tax income would be from this entity. What would someone pay for that net after-tax stream of income? And so, in effect, tax-affecting. But in addition, the taxpayer at the end of the appraisal also considered the advantages of being an S corporation and applied some premium uh, to the bottom line for for being an S corporation as well. And so the the tax court concluded in this memorandum opinion, Judge Pugh, that what the taxpayer's approach appraiser did was the most appropriate. I'm, I'm quoting from the case. We find on the record before us that Mr. Riley, that's the taxpayer's appraiser, has more accurately taken into account the tax consequences of the flow-through status for purposes of estimating what a willing buyer and selling seller might conclude regarding its value. His adjustments include a reduction in the total tax burden by imputing the burden of the current tax that an owner might owe on the entity's earnings and the benefit of a future dividend tax avoided that an owner might enjoy. Mr. Riley's tax affecting tax affecting may not be exact, but it is more complete and more convincing than the respondent's zero tax rate. Hence, we get a situation where the court ended up going with uh, tax affecting. The court also made the observation, interestingly, he said that while the IRS objects, I'm quoting, the IRS objects vociferously in his brief 
to petitioners tax effective. His experts are notably silent. And then it goes on to say, thus, we do not have a fight between valuation experts, but a fight between lawyers. And so looking at this as a fact issue, it concluded that the taxpayer's tax-affecting approach, taking also taking into account advantages being an S-corporation, was the most appropriate approach. Hence, we seem to have a crack in the dam of the 20-year approach of the tax court of no tax affecting. Some of the prior case law recently, the Crest case came out uh, just, and we discussed this, the Crest case came out uh, several months ago. The court didn't have a big discussion of tax affecting, but the taxpayers of appraisal did that and the court went with it. Prior to that time, we'd had the Cecil case. This was tried three and a half years ago, but we are still awaiting a decision in the Cecil case. So now we have a tax court memo decision saying that we do get tax affecting. And the other big issue for an entity that produces income but also has a big net asset value, uh, this issue of to what extent do we take into account the net asset value in that discussion. Uh, Todd, any comments you have about some of those valuation issues? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, going back to the the issue with the settlement of, of the true case. Um, so it it really you know sort of you'll have differences of of opinions from different practitioners whether you should use let's say a formula clause or a price adjustment clause. And I'd just be interested in in your thoughts of the relative pros and cons. I mean we. We are. We hear anecdotally that if you use a formula clause or a price adjustment clause, that that's going to typically uh, be flagged for audit um, uh, more more so than uh, than if you did not use one. Um, and you know, I, I suppose it's the the policy rationale behind the IRS's challenge of these types of clauses uh, tends to be well because both of these clauses violate public policy. And the reason why they would violate public policy is because if either the formula clause or the price adjustment clause were given effect, uh, then it would lead to no additional gift tax, even if the value were changed for gift tax purposes. And that serves as a sort of a disincentive by the IRS to to um, pursue an audit where you have one of these clauses. On the other hand, Steve, like you point out in the true case, you know, it was effectively a, a, a sword uh, that the, the taxpayer was able to, to use to, to, to fight with on valuation. And, uh, you know, the, the net result was a much lower sort of taxable gift, much, much lower uh, taxable gift than ta- gift tax paid uh, than the original position taken by the service. So I, I think it, it's an interesting back and forth or pros and cons that you need to consider whether you're going to use one of these clauses or not. You know, and Todd, I think at one point, these were viewed very suspiciously by the IRS to the point that someone's a tax cheater if they're using this sort of a clause. I don't think agents view it that way anymore. There's been enough success in the cases that it's not just someone out to totally destroy the system and cheat the system, but it it, it still can be a red flag. But I don't think it's the same red flag that we were fearful of 10 years ago. Yeah, and and to that point, Steve, I think it's, you know, in my experience, this is this is an issue that clients find often find extremely frustrating, um, just from a reasonableness standpoint, because you know it is really sort of a very reasonable request to use this exemption. 
right? And it's usually the case where clients, you know, they'll they'll look at it saying, okay, look, the, the government has given us this very generous increased exemption of 11 plus million dollars. Thank you very much. That's great. All I want to do is use that, but I don't want to pay gift taxes. And I don't happen to have $11 million in cash lying around, but rather it's tied up in my business. I've reinvested the money into my business. I want to make a gift of shares of, uh, let's say, stock in my company using up that exemption. You've been telling me for years that we can use other sorts of formulas to fund, let's say, X dollars worth of shares at my death into a credit shelter trust. So all I want to do is use this generous exemption that the government has given us, and I want to fund it with assets that I have. And those happen to be shares of stock or partnership interests or something like that that are inherently hard to value. So all we're trying to do is figure out how much we can use to fill up that bucket, but we don't want to pay gift tax. Um, so you know, from a policy rationale, it's a hard discussion to have with clients to say, well, you know, this this is viewed as violating public policy, and therefore uh, it might be challenged by the IRS, because it really doesn't strike you like there's a policy violation here. All you're trying to do is use up the exemption with the assets that you have, and you don't happen to have 11 million bucks of cash lying around. Maybe we can switch gears a little bit uh, to the the Crest case and some interesting implications and arguments under Section 2703 and judicial notice, but uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Crest, please. Crest v. United States is a U.S. district court case, and that's important to remember. That's the district court case coming out of Wisconsin uh, in March of this year involving Green Bay Packing which is an S-corporation. It's an operating business, held some non-operating assets, but basically this was a gift tax case. What's the value of minority interest uh, of gifts that were made of shares of an S-corporation? So involving the uh, how we value that operating business, market price, the discounted cash flow approach, discounts, all that comes into play. Uh, we don't get a lot of valuation cases, pure valuation cases, and this is one of those. The interesting in this case that the company used a formula for either selling to or buying back stock from employees. And that was 120% of book value. Whether or not that's the right value or not, that, that's what it used with respect to stock that went to employees. Well, the IRS tried to apply that same formula to stock that was gifted to family members, uh, even though the formula did not apply to gifts to family members. That was only for employees. And so as a result, the IRS said that they were $2 million short on gift tax. Uh, they paid the gift tax, filed for a claim for refund, hence the district court case. Some of the interesting issues coming out of the case, appraisals. The IRS had an appraiser. The taxpayer had, interestingly, two different appraisers. The IRS appraiser is one that is used by the IRS in a lot of cases. Uh, the taxpayer's appraiser was one that the company used repeatedly year after year and so knew the company very well, and then another had another appraiser as well. Uh, one of the very interesting comments that was made with respect to the taxpayers, I'm sorry, with respect to the IRS appraiser, Burns, the, the tax court used a prior appraiser of another company against 
that, that appraiser said that in another situation, they came up with a, a higher uh, marketability discount. So why, why, would it, why wouldn't it apply in this case? So very interesting. We know appraisers are sensitive about wanting to be consistent. Well, the, the, here's the reason why. Another very interesting observation that was made, this case involved gift tax valuation during the period of the downturn. In this case, the court took judicial notice of the general economic downturn during some of this period when the gifts were made, and that that affected the valuation of the stock. Very interesting of taking judicial notice of that. Tax affecting. This was valuing an S-corporation, so we get right back into that tax affecting issue. The Burns appraisal now, remember, he's the IRS appraiser, appraised based on the market approach, also based on an income approach. And on the income approach appraisal process, the government appraiser, quote, applied an effective tax rate to the corporation as if it were a C-corporation in determining the income that was being produced. Uh, so you assume a C-corporation tax rate for this S-corporate. That, that's the tax affecting the earnings of the S-corp. The taxpayer appraiser did as well. The court did not make a big deal of this tax affecting issue, but both appraisers did. The, the uh, court ended up going with one of the taxpayers' appraisers who tax-affected the earnings of the S-Corp. Uh, the other issue, very interesting issue that was raised in the case, Todd, that you had mentioned, the 2703 issue. This case was one where there was a, a restriction that said stock held by a family member could only be transferred to a family member. As a result, they applied a little greater marketability discount. Uh, is that correct or not? Under 2703, uh, 2703A, that is a restriction on the right to use or selling the asset. And so that is a restriction that you cannot take into consideration unless you meet the safe harbor of 2703B. 2703B1, is it a bona fide business arrangement? This court said yes. Being able to retain family control, to avoid dissident shareholders, all of that. It is There's legitimate business purposes for doing that. So it meets that test. Uh, second requirement under 2703B, that it is not a device to transfer assets to the decedent's family members at less than fair market value. Uh, do we satisfy that or not? The court very interestingly said that a government regulation would be invalid because the IRS recognized this back when Chapter 14 was adopted, that this was really a mistake in the statute. The statute says it advised to transfer to the decedent's family at less than fair market value. Well, the taxpayer argued in this case, this is, there's no decedent involved in all of this at all. This is a gift tax case, and that shouldn't apply to a gift tax. Well, the government tried to sidestep that in the regulation by rewarding it to say a device to transfer to natural objects of the bounty of the transferor. Court said the statute was unambiguous. It talked about a, a decedent trying to apply this in a gift tax context is invalid. And therefore, B-2 doesn't apply in this situation. B-3, mm -hmm. a comparability test. Now, here the court said there is no evidence that unrelated parties in an arm's-length agreement would agree to this sort of, sort of agreement, you know, which is really uh, totally sidesteps the issue. 
you know, an agreement that family members can only transfer it to family members. Well, sure, you're not going to have unrelated parties in an arms length transaction agreeing to that. That's a totally different situation. We know there are a lot of situations where family members will want and include that sort of provision in a family transaction. Uh, but the court said here there was not enough evidence of comparability. Therefore, 2703B was not satisfied. Therefore, you cannot take into account that restriction. The appraiser said, uh, and very astute for them to think of this ahead of time, that the effect of not taking that into consideration only had a 3% effect. So it took the marketability discount down from 28 to 30% for various years down to 25 to 27%. Uh, other than that, the court went with the appraisal of the taxpayer. Todd, your comments about Cress. Yeah, so, so very interesting case on a number of fronts. As you mentioned, cer certainly the court taking judicial notice of the downturn uh, was something which was very interesting and quite honestly reflective of you know reality. Uh, right. The 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 discussion with respect to um, the device uh, prong of 2703B very interesting, very meaningful um, because I think from a practical standpoint, um, we generally look at 2703 as a provision that's not only an estate tax disregarding provision but also a gift tax disregarding provision and you know look to, let's say, the Holman case, for instance, where they did talk about uh, this was in a gift tax context in 2703B, the device prong not being satisfied for gift tax purposes in the right. Holman case. Well, this is very interesting that the court looked at the regulations that were more expansive, natural objects of one's bounty, and said, no, let's look at the statute. The statute says the decedent, so inherently we're talking about this for estate tax purposes. So I do think that's a very interesting case. Um, I think the point that you make that this is a district court case uh, is an important distinction. But nonetheless, um, you know, when you look at the Cahill case where you really have sort of a little bit of an expansion of 2703, this is sort of a contraction of 2703. So, uh, yeah, very, very interesting case indeed. So the, the last and I mentioned the, that, the district court case that that's also important because of the tax affecting. We can't read too much into this. It's the tax court that has come out with this rule: no tax affecting. This was a district court case, not a tax court case. Great. So the last thing that we wanted to switch to, Steve, the last sort of hot item, if you will, and I, I'd say this is one of the really hot ones uh, and still evolving, is sort of. Um, estate planning implications with respect to qualified opportunity funds. We have uh, some uh, second tranche of proposed regs that came out in April, uh, and there were some favorable provisions with that with respect to trust-type planning. Uh, but maybe you can let us know a little bit about this, Steve. Before I get into the proposed reg, let me go back over the, the tax benefits that are there of qualified opportunity funds. Three big benefits. First one, somebody has sold an asset, and there's a big gain. How can you defer paying tax on that gain? Hard to come up with ways to do that. Well, now there's a way. If the person, whatever that gain was, person doesn't have to be those dollars, but they take other dollars equal to the same amount of that gain, and they invest it in a, quote, qualified opportunity funds. Those are funds that invest in kind of disadvantaged communities that, that have been identified. Uh, if they invest in that fund, then they can defer having to recognize that gain on the other asset until December 31 of 2026. 
So a, like a seven-year deferral uh, possibility. Or it gets accelerated earlier if the person were to sell their interest in the qualified opportunity fund. But So the deferral of gain. Second benefit, it's possibility to actually have a forgiveness of some of that gain. If the person invests in this qualified opportunity fund and holds the investment at least five years, then 10% of that prior gain will not have to be reported in 2026. If they hold it at least seven years, then 15% of the gain will not have to be reported on December 31, 2026. That seven-year period, you start adding up the, the, the years. That is, the person would have to have had the gain and invest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund this year before December 31, 2019, in order for seven years to run by 2026 to get, be able to get the 15% uh, exclusion of the gain. Third potential tax benefit. If the person holds the investment in the Qualified Opportunity Fund, hopefully that'll be a good investment. It'll rise in value as well. When it's ultimately sold, there'll be a gain on that investment. If the person holds that investment for at least 10 years, then any gain on the Qualified Opportunity Fund investment itself will not be recognized. So three nice tax benefits. Proposed regs, we got one set last summer. We got another set in April of this year dealing with inclusion events. Remember I said that if someone invests in one of these funds, but then there's a sale or exchange of their interest in the fund, then we immediately accelerate the deferred gain that they were trying to defer. These proposed regs went to that. What events are going to trigger that immediate acceleration? The proposed regs call them inclusion events. And they go through a lot of different possible events that we would think of, sales, exchanges, et cetera. Interestingly, involving our area, they say that a gift is an inclusion event, Well, which is very surprising. If the statute talks about a sale or exchange as accelerating it, now to say that a gift does that as well sure seems to be reading a lot into the statute. Uh, but a gift is covered. Uh, there are, in addition, they say that there would be tacking of holding periods, et cetera. So, for example, of that 10-year business, have you held on the interest in the fund for 10 years? So you get exclusion of the gain in the fund itself. You get to count the donors holding period. Uh, in that as well. There are two exceptions of gifts being inclusion events causing the acceleration. One is, if there is a gift to a grantor trust, that is not an inclusion event. But uh, changing uh, from a grantor trust to a non-grantor trust would trigger, uh, unless it's death, which I'll get into in a minute. So a gift to a grantor trust does not. The second exception from the gift being an inclusion event is death. So th th this isn't gift, but it's you know, kind of akin to a gift. It's a transfer that's not a sale or exchange that would occur at death. This says death is not an inclusion event. Either death itself, transfer from the decedent's name to the estate, even transferring title from the estate to the legatee, none of those events would trigger the immediate acceleration of the gain and would be an inclusion event. 
some observations about those things. And then, Todd, I get your comments as well. Uh, with respect sure. to the gift to the grantor trust, now, they leave open kind of all of the sort of transactions of grantor trust. Uh, are, are those not going to be inclusion events either? A sale to the grantor trust, a swap. Uh, back out of the grantor trust. Uh, so, and comments have been made requesting clarification on that. With respect to the death exception, I find that very, very interesting when analogizing to a sale to a grantor trust. If there's a sale to a grantor, and not, not involving qualified opportunity funds, just the garden variety sale to a grantor trust, we've always been concerned what if the note does not get paid back before? death occurs? Do we have immediate recognition of the gain at that point? Uh, is there recognition later? What is the effect of that? And, and we think that death itself would not trigger all the remaining gain on the note. We don't have a lot of authority to cite to that. There is a CCM. It was 2009-23-024, CCA, several years ago that, that dealt with a sale to grantor trust sort of situation involving a foreign trust situation, really a very different area. But the comment was made in the CCA that the death of the owner generally is not treated as an income tax event. That's kind of the best authority we've had to cite, a CCA. Now we have a proposed regulation we think will become a final regulation to cite as to that issue, uh, something much more authoritative. So very interesting proposed regs, kind of like the clawback situation. There's a lot of pressure to get this finalized quickly because investors into these funds need to know what the rules are. So my suspicion is that we'll be seeing the finalization of this sooner rather than later uh, and raising some of these questions that I've addressed. Todd, your comments. Well, great. Thank you for that overview, Steve. Very, very useful. Um, so, so some interesting additional uh observations or comments as you as you had mentioned right now we don't know uh, whether or not you can engage in let's say sales uh, to a grantor trust or swaps uh, of assets with a grantor trust we only know that you can make a contribution of a QF interest into a grantor trust without that being an acceleration event similarly we don't know whether payments out of grantor trust to the grantor let's say perhaps in connection with grant annuity payments or perhaps uh, uh, in-kind distribution of QOF interest, uh, you know, in connection with a promissory note payment, whether that would be considered an inclusion event or not. Uh, the ACTEC committee uh, submitted uh, comments to Treasury led by uh, you know, Kevin Matz and Benita Park Jensen, who, who, who really kind of uh, took the laboring oar on this uh, and submitted additional comments to the second tranche of regulations. And, uh, at the uh, hearing in front of Treasury where Kevin Matt spoke, he was uh, had some discussion about some further clarifications being needed with respect to these additional tra uh, transactions with grantor trust. The other thing I would say is that, you know, the, if you were going to use one of these in connection with a grantor trust, you need to be very mindful about turning off grantor trust status because, as you said before, Steve, that could be an acceleration event, right? The proposed second tranche of regulations say that turning off grantor trust status will be an acceleration event unless it's basically turning off or terminating grantor trust status as a result of the death uh, of the of the of the grantor so a lot more that uh, has to happen with this but uh, there are some really interesting applications of maybe using a QOF interest 
in connection with the grantor trust uh, that could have some um, great benefits, perhaps even more so than gifts of traditional assets because of your ability to get the stepped-up basis after 10 years in the grantor trust so that you can get the appreciation out of the estate as well as get the stepped-up basis in that grantor trust. And if we get the clarification that we're hoping for, perhaps that can give rise to even more uh, planning opportunities uh, with additional transactions, uh, maybe preferred partnerships, things like that. Um, but so, Steve, thank you very much. We've we really covered a lot today and really appreciate your time. You have indeed covered a lot of the hot issues. Maybe I can just ask you if you could uh, have any parting comments before we conclude. Uh, my parting comment is, Todd and Daniel, thank you very much. I have enjoyed our discussion together. Well, thanks so much. We appreciate uh, all your uh, wisdom and insights. Uh, and thank you, uh, everyone, for, for joining us. Daniel? Yeah, thank you, Steve, for joining Todd and myself for our pilot episode of Conversations on Wealth. To our audience, we hope that you enjoyed and learned from this Hot Topics podcast, and we look forward to future conversations with the industry's leading practitioners on important and complex wealth planning issues. This has been Conversations on Wealth by Bloomberg Tax. You can find Conversations on Wealth on pro.bloombergtax.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving us a review on iTunes or reaching out to Todd at todd.angatovinich at ey.com or daniel at dhoffy at bloombergtax.com. Until our next conversation, happy planning.